Good morning, everyone. Uh, here we are again. We're uh, going to conclude our look at uh, this third vision in, uh, in Zechariah 2. Um, as we said, it breaks down into three scenes. Before we uh, read the scripture that's there, uh, please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are, we are thankful for the start of a, another month. We are continually reminded of your constant and daily provision for us. And so as we come now, Lord, to hear your word read, to hear it preached, we thank you that your spirit has been preparing our hearts for this moment. As we have entered into your presence, Father, with, with worship, as we have confessed our sin and received words of assurance of pardon, as we have we've recited together uh, an ancient creed which once again declares the, the solid foundation of our faith, we come into your presence, Lord God, as those who are always needful of your grace. And we are thankful that when we approach your throne, we can do so with boldness through the finished work of Christ. And when we do, we can find mercy and we can receive grace in time of need. We pray, Lord God, that uh, as we hear your word, that your spirit would apply it to the various situations in which each of us confronts. Some of us, Father, face challenges at work. Some of us, Lord God, face challenges at home and in our families and our schools. We struggle, Lord God, to come to terms with a world that is not always kind to us and at which, Father, we are not always kind ourselves. And so we pray for strength. We pray for wisdom. We pray, Lord God, for insight and understanding, and we pray for patience. We do not always understand your ways, O God, but we trust that you are good. We are not always bold to come into your presence, but sometimes fear coming into your presence. And then you remind us you are, we are always in your presence. And because of Christ's finished work, there is no longer any need to fear, but to fall into your arms of grace and welcome and mercy. And this vision, Father, reminds us that you are a God who not only welcomes worship, but a God who rouses himself on behalf of his people to come to our aid, to come to our assurance, to come to our encouragement, that you indeed are the great King, the Lord of the universe, who is not safe, but is always good. And so speak to us now, Lord God, from your word, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the third vision in Isaiah, uh, in Zechariah, rather, is found in chapter 2. We've read it, and we'll read it again. The prophet says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, 
Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of, my, of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Now, as we finish this, uh, our study of this third vision in Isaiah, uh, I want to begin by reading to you a quote. It was shared with me by Pastor John, and it's from uh, Annie Dillard's uh, book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. And uh, in it, in the, you'll, you'll discover in the quote, Dillard talks about how we are to approach, or how we ought to approach, uh, a time of gathered worship as we come into the presence of, of the Lord. And I think you'll see how it fits in, uh, hopefully, with uh, Zechariah's third vision. So Dillard writes, Why do people in church seem uh, like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear lady straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. The overall theme of Zechariah's third vision is that God inspires hope by choosing to dwell among his people. But in, in inspiring that kind of hope, in choosing to dwell among his people, there is this sense in which we may not be aware of the power that we blithely come in contact with and invoke when God does choose to dwell among us. That Annie Dillard's quote reminds us, much like uh, C.S. Lewis does in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that God is very much at times like Aslan the lion. He's not safe but he is good. So we see in this vision, for example, in the first scene, which is verses 1 through 5, that the Lord is a wall of fire around Jerusalem. He's not safe. He's a wall of fire. But he is good in that he is also the glory in her midst. Then in scene 2, verses 6 through 9, the Lord is the one who avenges his people by punishing the nations that punish them. He's not safe. But then, we see that he is good because he is now the Lord who then saves his people from their enemies. And in this third scene, verses 10 to 13, we see that the Lord is not safe because when he rouses himself, when he rises from his holy dwelling, that is, is supposed to instill fear in his enemies. But at the same time, he is good because by rousing himself, the Lord is demonstrating that he has heard the pleas of his people there in Chapter 1, verse 12, how long, O Lord, will it be before you, you act? 
And so we see that he rouses himself in order to inspire uh, his people to hope and also to demonstrate the, if you will, the irresistible attraction of his grace. And so in verses 10 to 13 of Zechariah 2, there is this encouragement. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Scene 2, which is immediately before this, obviously, at the end of chapter 1, scene 2 ends, uh, rather, uh, in verses 6 and 9, scene 2 ends with this urgent plea to flee from Babylon and come into the safety of the city of Zion. Scene 3 begins with an enthusiastic call to worship. Again, let's sort of get the idea that we're dealing with a vision here. So we're dealing with imagery that is in stark contrast to the reality of what Zechariah sees before him. Remember, he is in a city that is essentially reduced or been reduced to rubble. Jerusalem has been laid waste. The walls are in ruins. And yet in the midst of all of that devastation and desolation, here in this vision, there is this call to worship. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. So we can draw from that that in whatever situation we find ourselves in, there is always a cause and a reason to rejoice, to sing, and to take joy in the fact that God is present and God has a plan. So in the midst of a supply chain crisis, in the midst of an ongoing pandemic, in the midst of an economy that doesn't seem to have any sense of where it's going, numbers seem to be contrasting, unemployment down, but there's a sense of unease and unrest. The word from the scripture says, sing and rejoice because God has a plan. God is in control. God knows what's going on in Babylon. God knows what's going on in the hearts and in the midst of his people. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. And the reason that God tells us to sing and rejoice is is given by himself. He says, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. So again, this tells us that God knows our address. He knows where we live. He knows the situation that we are confronted by and that confronts us. And notice here that he chooses to come to us. Where we in our despair, perhaps, we in our panic, we in our anxiety and in our fretting, we are maybe get caught up in a desperate search for God, which is not a bad thing. But the scripture reminds us, in fact, the very heart of Christianity is that God comes searching for us. That God comes to us. And so the way we sense God's presence, the way we understand his presence, Glory in our midst is by invoking his name and in call upon, calling upon him in worship and in rejoicing. And he is worthy of our worship because he is the good king. He is the one who makes this double promise to Zion. I will come and more than that, I will dwell. So it's not just a five minute pop in that God is talking about here. Not a five-minute stop by just to check on you and maybe have a quick prayer and then move on. But it's to dwell. 
It's to tabernacle. It's to settle exactly where we are, to settle into the place where we are so that he can be with us. It's, it's very reminiscent of, of what David says in Psalm 23, where God makes us lie down in green pastures. He restores our soul. And then in the very next verse, verse 5, he says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He does that because he comes and he dwells with us. And that he dwells with us so that he may lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So that gives us more reason to sing and to rejoice. So the, the path that you're on, whether in home or school or work, that's a path that God has chosen for you. A path that he is leading you in. Righteousness for his name's sake. You may not understand all of that. It may not be comprehensible to you as to how and why and where God is leading you. But the scripture assures us it is paths of righteousness for his name's sake, for his glory and for our good. And that double promise that God makes to, through Zechariah here to come and to dwell, that provides a double incentive for those who are dwelling in Babylon to flee from there and come into the midst and presence of his people. Remember, before the exile, God did come and visit Jerusalem, but not to dwell in their midst, and certainly not to offer them comfort and assurance as he does here. But there he visited them by sending them Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, that ancient singing group back then. They, a bad dad joke, I understand. But I went for it, there you go. So he sends King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to punish Jerusalem and Judah for her sins. They break down Jerusalem's walls. They take her citizens captive. They destroy the temple and they loot and they take away from the temple all of the worship items, including the Ark of the Covenant. But now God makes another promise when he says, I will come and dwell in your midst. A promise not to punish his people, but to come and to redeem them, to protect them. That when God comes searching for us, particularly before we had a, a faith relationship with Jesus, when you sense the presence of God, before you have that faith relationship with, through Jesus Christ, there is a terror and a, and a fear. There is that moment like Isaiah experiences in Isaiah 6 when he sees the temple filled with the glory of God and the very doorposts of the temple are shaking because the seraphim are shouting, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah's response is, I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then God sends an angel with a coal and burns and sears the sin from Isaiah's lips. And so there is that moment when we don't know Christ, that there is a moment of fear. But now, when you enter into a relationship with Christ, when, it, when by faith we understand that he is our Savior and Redeemer, when we sense God's presence coming to us, it's a cause and a moment for singing and for rejoicing because he comes now to dwell, to be a wall of fire all around. He comes to be the glory in your midst. Again, verse 10. The prophet says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. This language, if you have been reading through Zechariah, or reading through the, 
the gospel. You know that this language that is used here, O daughter of Jerusalem, sing and rejoice, is the same language that will appear in Zechariah 9.9, where the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We know that Zechariah 9.9 is fulfilled when Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey on that first Palm Sunday. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he does so that he might be a wall of fire all around her. Remember, when Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the first thing he does, the first place he goes is the temple. And the wall of fire that goes out from his mouth and from his actions is to cleanse the temple from all of the money changers and to make it a house of prayer, as it should be. But Jesus came to do more than just restore the temple into a house of prayer. He came to replace the temple as a physical embodiment of the presence of God in her midst. He comes to dwell. He comes to tabernacle. He comes to be the glory in our midst by replacing the, the Ark of the Covenant as well. You think about what happened in the Day of Atonement when the priest would go in and the curtain, the veil would be parted and the priest would go in and then the veil would close. And it's just him in, in front of the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the glory of God dwells, the footstool of the Almighty and all he has between him and the glory of God is a basin filled with blood that he has to pour onto that cover, the mercy seat. Jesus comes as the Ark of the Covenant so that we could behold the glory of God face to face and live and not fear death. When Moses beheld the glory of God on the mount and he came down, he had to put a veil over his face. Not out of vanity, but because his face shone with the glory of God so that if people were to gaze upon Moses' face, they would be killed because as God tells Moses in Exodus 33, no man shall see my face and live. But here God comes in the person of Jesus Christ so that we could behold his glory full of grace and truth glory is of the only begotten and not die but live because we see in the face of Christ the glory of God revealed come to come to us come to dwell in us that Jesus makes it possible as the as the temple as the ark to come into contact with the glory of God and live and to do so to its fullest the wall of fire all around us is, is Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep that we might have life and have it abundantly. That is the glory of God in our midst. Jesus is our great high priest. He is the one who enters into the, the heavenly temple, if you will, not bringing with him the, the blood of a lamb, but his own blood that he presents to the Father as sacrifice for our sins. And that enables us then, because of Christ's finished work, because of his work as our great high priest, he enables us to approach boldly with confidence the throne of God and find that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
as the temple of God in human flesh, Jesus makes it possible for us then to become the temple of God, the place and the very vessel in which the Holy Spirit lives. And Paul talks about in, about in 1 Corinthians 3. And as the Ark of the Covenant, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as the writer of Hebrews refers to him in Hebrews 6, he is the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. He is the hope and the future of all who trust in him. So this vision that, Isaiah, that Zechariah sees, it speaks hope to the present, but then expands in, well into the future. That there is a plan that God has for his immediate generation, but that plan reverberates and echoes as we have sung through eternity, through this age and on into the age to come. God's promise given here is not a threat, <laughs> but it's a sign of hope. It's a promise to send his son to be a wall of fire all around us in the glory in our midst. It's a promise that he makes never to abandon us, never to desert us, despite what we feel. We may feel abandoned, but Christ was truly abandoned. So that all we could do is feel abandoned. We may feel God has deserted us. But Christ was truly deserted by God on the cross so that all we can do is simply feel deserted. But the reality is, God has come and He has dwelt among us. He dwells within us. And when we gather together, we can experience, and we ought to at least experience, His presence in such a way as, as I began by, uh, with Annie Dillard's quote, that there ought to be this understanding that we are not blithely invoking some foreign power, but we are joyfully invoking a power greater than we can even imagine that has created all things simply by the word of his mouth. This promise that God gives us never to abandon us, never to desert us, Jesus makes to the apostles in John 14, 18. I will not leave you as orphans, he says, on the night that he is to be betrayed. I will come to you. Jesus promised then to send the Holy Spirit who will teach them all things and bring to their remembrance everything he said to them. And that's what he does for us, the Spirit. It's Jesus then also promising before his ascension at the end of Matthew's Gospel, I am with you always to the end of the age. How long is always? There's no limit on always. It's the Holy Spirit then coming on the day of Pentecost, filling the 120 disciples at Pentecost, so that they can go out and carry out the Great Commission and preach to the many nations that God assembled in Jerusalem in fulfillment of what is predicted and prophesied here in Zechariah 2. Zechariah may not, likely did not see the fulfillment of this vision. But he, like Abraham, trusted that God would fulfill it. And so we worship now in remembrance and in celebration of what God has done. Zechariah and his generation are encouraged to sing and rejoice in anticipation of what God will do. And the evidence that God will do it is the fact that they are now returned to the holy city, the place from which they had been exiled. Now they're here. 
And if they would go back and review the history, they would see that God fulfilled his promise to Noah. He fulfilled his promise to Abraham. He fulfilled his promise to Moses. He fulfilled, he fulfilled his promise to Joshua, to David, and on and on and on. So everything that we believe now in the present is based on what God has done in the past, which gives us confidence to trust him for the future. Zechariah didn't see the fulfillment of this prophecy, but we have. But there's more. Because even though we celebrate what God has already done, we worship and rejoice in anticipation of what God is yet to do when Christ comes back. And so the justice that we cry out for, the injustice that makes us fret and fear and get angry, we can then lay on the altar of sacrifice and say, God will deal with that when Jesus returns. We may never get justice in this life, but we ought never stop giving justice. We may never be treated justly, but because of what Jesus has done, we are required and responsible to deal justly because God will settle all accounts. That's how we're salt. That's how we're light. So you move from verse 10 to verses 11 and 12. And verses 11 and 12 provide added texture to God's promise to come and dwell in the midst of his people. The, the vision continues, this third and final scene. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. That language, the nations shall join, they shall become my people, that's covenant language. And that is astonishing news. What God is telling the prophet and telling us through the prophet and telling his generation is that the very nations that God sent to plunder Israel the very nations that God will in turn plunder for punishing his people, will in fact end up joining themselves to the Lord and become part of the covenant community. To get an idea of how astonishing that news is likely to have impacted Zechariah, imagine if the verse said this, and in that day, all of communist China, all of North Korea, and the entire Muslim world shall join themselves to the Lord, and they shall be my people. It's that expansive. It's that amazing. It's that gracious inclusion. So you have, again, as I've said before, this anticipation, not only of the ministry of Jesus Christ in Zechariah 2, but the anticipation of the character and mission of the church, that through the church and the proclamation of the gospel, the many nations will join themselves uh, to the Lord. And what makes this prophecy of Zechariah even more astonishing is that the fact that the Lord began preparing the nations to receive this word 200 years before Zechariah arrives on the scene. What makes me say that? Well, the Bible does. Because in 2 Kings 17, we see the genesis of God's plan for the nations here. The context of 2 Kings 17 is this. The northern kingdom, Israel, has fallen. 
and the, the king of Assyria has begun to deport the native Israelites from that region into the kingdom of Assyria, and he is sending people from other nations to settle in Samaria, the northern kingdom, Israel. But there's a problem, and we'll pick up the narrative. I'm going to read the narrative to you. This is 2 Kings 17, 24 to 28. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. They took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, uh, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came. He lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. 200 years before Zechariah prophesied that the nations would join themselves to the Lord, the Lord sends a priest to teach the nations about the law of the land. Now he sends the priest to Bethel. If you know anything about the history of, of Israel, the northern kingdom, you know Bethel was the site of one of two temples that Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, built. He, is, he built golden calves. He put one in Dan and one in Bethel. So it's likely the priest who is sent to teach the nations isn't really, he's not a Levite. He's not a descendant of, of Levi. He's not from the Aaronic priesthood. But he at least has some knowledge of the law of the Lord, and he begins to teach the people the basics. Now, why do I spend so much time mentioning this? Why is it so important to, to know that 200 years before Zechariah, a priest from Israel goes back to Samaria to teach the nations about the law of God? Why is it important to know he begins to catechize them? Here's why. Because there's this little scene that takes place in John's Gospel. In the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus is traveling through Samaria, the, the northern, what used to be the northern kingdom. And while he's passing through Samaria, <coughs> he is tired and he decides to stop at Jacob's well near a little town called Sychar. A woman from that town, a Samaritan woman, comes to the well to draw water. In the middle of the afternoon, she should have come earlier in the morning. But we find out she didn't come early in the morning. She comes by herself because the woman has a reputation. She's been married five times, and the man that she's living with now is not her husband, and Jesus tells her this. And they have a little conversation, and John tells us while the conversation is going on that the Samaritans and the Jews did not have dealings with one another, primarily because the, the Samaritans were considered to be a mixed race. Remember, they had married likely with the nations from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim. However, Jesus being Jesus, what does he do? He talks with the woman. Something you're not supposed to do. It breaks all manner of um, convention, of societal convention. Right? He actually dares to speak to this woman. They have a conversation. 
Some of it concerns living water that's drawn from the well. And at the end of their conversation, the woman tells Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus says, well, I who speak to you am he. So this woman, who is brought up in Samaria, whose relatives were likely descendants of those trained by that initial priest, now is ready to hear the message of Christ in that moment. And matter of fact, she then goes back to Sychar and she says, I'm going to tell everyone what you have said. And then she goes, she said, I want, to, I want you to meet a man who's told me everything about myself. And then the town flocks out to see him. And that's where Jesus makes that, that uh, memorable statement, I want you to lift up your eyes because the fields are white unto harvest. And as he's saying that, you can see the people of Samaria of Sychar coming out to Jesus. Why? Because it's time for the many nations now to be gathered into the city of God. From the beginning, God's plan is to save humanity and to restore creation by choosing Israel to be a light to the nations. And in his conversation with the Samaritan woman, Jesus even says salvation is from the Jews. But here's the thing. Israel failed in its mission to be a light to the nations. That's why God sends Jesus as a, not only the physical embodiment of the temple, not only the physical embodiment of the Ark of the Covenant, but he is the perfect Israel, the fully obedient servant of the Lord, who tells this woman, the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must come, must worship him in spirit and in truth. God comes in search of men and women who will worship him in spirit and in truth. To add to himself the many nations. The Apostle Paul expands on Jesus' words in Romans 2, 28 and 29. In a very famous passage at the end of that second chapter, Paul says, contrasting who is a true Jew and who is not, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What Paul says is very helpful in understanding what Jesus is saying, particularly in light of what is said in verse 12 of Zechariah 2. Right? The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Remember, this is a vision. It has to be understood as that. So in a vision, things stand for other things. We know that in the vision, Babylon stands for more than just the physical nation of Babylon. Therefore, Judah must stand for more than just the physical tribe or country of Judah. It represents more than that. In fact, in the vision, Judah represents the remnant of the entire company of the covenant people of God. But from the vision itself, many nations, so it's Jew and Gentile that are being spoken of here, Again, this is where Paul picks us up in Ephesians 2. Talking to these Gentile believers in the city of Ephesus, in the church there, he says in Ephesus 2, 
You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then again in chapter 3, verse 6, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We are in that company. I, we are in that company of Gentiles who are no longer strangers and aliens. We are those who are partakers of the very promises, the very covenants that God made with Noah, with Abraham, with Israel. So in those days, when you don't particularly feel like God loves you, when you are either sitting on the train or riding in an Uber or in the middle of class, and you're feeling alienated, bullied, isolated, and shunned, have no fear that God has abandoned you. Because you are not a stranger and an alien to him. But you are his beloved child. You are his son. You are his daughter. You are an heir to the covenant of promise. And the confidence you have is gained from what Christ has done not how you feel, not where you work, not whose company you keep, but in the one who keeps you, the one who holds you in the palm of his hand, who grips you with a nail-scarred hand and holds you close to his heart. You are in that company of Judah. And so Judah then, in this vision, becomes all those who by faith are joined to God through trust in Christ. So that wherever Judah is then, that place is holy land. This place here and now is more than just 360. It is holy ground. Because God is present here. And when you go home, and you read your Bible to your child, or you pray at grace at dinner time, that is holy ground. When you go to work and you sit at your cubicle, that is holy ground. Wherever you go is ground that has been claimed by the blood of Christ and where you go, a wall of fire surrounds you and you are a representative of the great and true king. Judah is anywhere God plants his church. Anywhere God chooses to dwell among his people and he chooses to dwell among his people wherever they are. Wherever they go, wherever the Lord chooses to dwell among his people is holy land. And given the fact that Jerusalem is said to be a city of ever-increasing size, the church then is not limited to any specific geographic region, and it extends well beyond the confines of the physical boundaries of the land of Israel. So the church just grows and grows and grows to include Israel, as well as the many nations. Now you may think, oh wait a minute, Pastor Mike, that sounds, I've never heard that before. Is that some new teaching that is coming down the pike? Or is that somehow telling, am I telling you that uh, the, the church uh, is replacing Israel? And I would say, no, not at all. Uh, and matter of fact, what I've just said in terms of the, the church expanding to include Israel and the Gentiles, fits well within the context of, uh, of Reformed theology. Uh, some years ago, it was a, a blog post titled, Covenant Theology is Not Replacement Theology, uh, written by uh, Professor R. Scott Clark. 
Uh, he's a professor of church history and historical theology at Westminster Seminary in California. And, uh, and Clark writes this. He says, with respect to salvation, Reformed theology does not contrast Israel and the church. For Reformed theology, the church has always been Israel of God, and the Israel of God has always been the church. Reformed covenant theology distinguishes the old and new covenants. It recognizes that the church was temporarily conveyed through a representative national people, but the church has existed since Adam, Noah, and Abraham, and it existed under Moses and David, and it exists under Christ. Despite the nullification of the national covenant by the obedience, death, and resurrection of Christ, the New Testament church has not replaced the Jews. Paul says that God grafted the Gentiles into the people of God. Grafting is not replacement. It is addition. It's widely held as well by Reformed theologians that there will be a great conversion of the Jews. Some will call this anti-Semitism, but it isn't. It isn't anti-Semitism. It's Christianity. It's the gospel. I think it was N.T. Wright who called the church an outpost of heaven that is ever-expanding and ever-growing. The kingdom of God, which had been limited to the ethnic and geographic place of Israel and country of Israel, will expand to include many nations. That's why Jerusalem is said to be inhabited as a village without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. It's a place of commerce, a place of growth, a place of activity, of dynamism. And, and while she expands, while she grows, the promises the Lord will be a wall of fire all around her. He will be the glory in her midst. He will answer the prayer that is prayed in 112. How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? And God says until my son comes, and then beyond that. Right? He will comfort Zion by adding to her number the many nations who will join themselves to him. And the vision ends. The vision ends with God rousing himself from his holy dwelling. It's as if the sleeping God has awakened at last, and he will come to Jerusalem, and he will dwell in her midst. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. When, when our kids were younger, and, and I would uh, occasionally be known in the middle of a golf game uh, on TV to take a nap, the kids would try to rouse me. And, uh, or they would be making noise. And my recliner would make this awful noise whenever I went from the reclining position to the seated position. And that noise would sort of like just be this warning, uh-oh. <laughs> Like, we've made too much noise, and now dad is coming. That's kind of the sense that's happening here. And in keeping with Annie Dillard's comment, right, be silent, all flesh. Strap on your clash helmets. Right? The Lord has roused himself from his holy dwelling. His holy dwelling. Lash yourselves to your seats. Buckle up, because the Lord isn't safe. But then again, who said anything about him being safe? Because he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, and he inspires hope by choosing to dwell among his people. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for coming to us and dwelling among us. We pray now as we prepare our hearts 
to receive the bread and the cup of communion, that we would welcome your presence, that we would be comforted by it and assured by it and encouraged by it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.